mentioned, my wife and I are, are church planting in Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Silver Lake. It's about 10 minutes or so north of downtown, near Dodger Stadium, um, near the Hollywood Hills, and stuff like that. Uh, the name of our church is um, Missio Dei. It's Latin for the mission of God or the sending of God. And uh, we chose it as our name because uh, we feel that it, at the same time, expresses both the heart of God and the call of the church. Uh, it expresses the heart of God because he is a missionary God, uh, the first and great missionary. Um, and that is our only hope, that he is a great pursuing God. And then uh, it expresses the calling of the church to be a missionary people. Uh, that um, as if you read John 20, that we have a double identity, that we are a saved people, uh, and then we are a sent people. And we are both of those at the same time. As um, one person put it, that it is not so much that the church of God has a mission in the world, but that the mission of God has a church in the world. Uh, it's for that mission that the church came into being, that he birthed it. And uh, so that is uh, what we are hoping to do, to see people come to faith uh, in that neighborhood. And so it's a real joy and blessing to be with you here today. And thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I wanted to share with you just a little bit from John chapter 1, from the passage that was just read. Uh, in that opening chapter of John, uh, John introduces a lot of themes that he keeps returning to over and over throughout his gospel. If you, uh, one of the challenges for a pastor to do a sermon series on the book of John is that because he keeps returning to themes again and again, it can sound repetitive. Um, and, but he introduces several big words in that opening chapter to describe Jesus. One of them is the word, uh, another is life, and another one is light. And it's that third one, light, that I want to talk about today. John uses the term beginning in verse 4, and he writes, In him, meaning Jesus, uh, was life, and the life was the light of men. In other places, John uses life to mean uh, salvation or eternal life, but here he's referring to creation, that Jesus is the source of life because he is the creator. And so when John says that the life was also the light of men. He means that Jesus is the source of life, of light that permeates all of creation, including us. But verse 5 goes further. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now here we move from creation to fall and redemption. Jesus as redemptive light presupposes a fallen darkness. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it is utterly realistic about the human condition, about life on earth. It acknowledges that there is a great darkness in the world. But the good news is that there is a light in the midst of that great darkness. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is light in the dark, in a fallen world? Well, there are at least two things that light does, right, in the midst of darkness. The first thing it does is it helps us to see and to understand it brings illumination. In a fallen world where everyone is very confused about life, about identity, about meaning, about purpose, about who they are and about who Jesus is, about who God is, Jesus, the light, provides the ultimate understanding to those questions. He illuminates. But in a fallen world, light also exposes uh, things that would rather stay hidden. Former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis once wrote, a sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants. 
And what he meant by that uh, was that the best way to keep institutions from becoming corrupt was to shine light upon them, to make information about them open and public. And in a fallen world, light exposes corruption that we would rather keep hidden. But the good news as you progress through the Gospel of John is that this light does not expose to condemn, but to cleanse and to free. And so we'll return to these two later on, but here what I want to do at the beginning is to look at verses 6 to 8. It says in those verses, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. These verses describe John the Baptist, who, if you're not familiar with the Bible, is not the same John as the author of this gospel. Uh, John the Baptist was actually Jesus' cousin, right? And his role in God's plan, uh, notice that he sent by God, was to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. John is, in many ways, in the unfolding story of the Bible, a transitional figure. Uh, in some ways, you might say that he's the last of the Old Testament folks. That is, his, he's the last major figure whose ministry begins and ends before the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so his purpose in God's plan is to point and prepare the way for Jesus. But as he did so, he began to develop a large following. And so this is why it's so important, the way he is described here, which is witness, which is used three times here. And this word witness is contrasted with the light. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light. John the Baptist himself will echo this later in the Gospel of John. He will explicitly say, I am not the Christ. He will say that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal straps. And he will say later, he, meaning Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. John was not the light. And he knew he wasn't the light. And this is very important for us to know as well, because even though John the Baptist's ministry is unique in many ways, those of us who believe in Jesus are also sent to bear witness about the light, but we are not the light. All of us, Christian or not, often live as if we are the light. All right, for some of us, this manifests itself in an inability to say no to people, as if their lives were going to come falling apart if we did. And so we live with this unbearable and kind of crushing weight. For others of us, this manifests itself in the ways that we want people to see us as the wise one, the helpful one, even the necessary one. Right, to be clear, the problem is not when we appreciate being appreciated. The problem is when the desire to be appreciated and even needed is what drives us. And because that desire is often mixed with a genuine desire to care and to help, it's very hard to detect. Right? It becomes most obvious when people don't find us very helpful or they find someone else much more helpful. And that, and that produces all kinds of hurt and jealousy and bitterness for not receiving the credit for all the ways that we have tried to help. 
Uh, there was an instance uh, years ago when I was uh, walking alongside this young man for uh, several issues that he had. And uh, though there had been some progress, uh, it often felt like we weren't getting anywhere. And, you know, it had been about a year now. But I tried to love him as best as I could. Uh, and then one day he comes, you know, we're having a regular meeting, and he says that God has really spoken to him. And that he, he's had this amazing breakthrough. And so I'm really excited. And I say, tell me more. Uh, and I think somewhere in the back of my head, what I meant was, tell me how I've finally gotten through to you, right? So, um, so he proceeds to tell me how he'd listened to this series of messages by this very well-known pastor and how God had really used that man to convict him and to make everything really clear. And in my heart, in my heart, I was happy, uh, but I was also frustrated because there was a part of me that was thinking, I have been saying the exact same thing for like a year now. But now that this big name pastor said it, all of a sudden it's so crystal clear. I have been saying literally the exact same thing for a year, and I know it's the exact same thing because I got it from that big name pastor. <laughs> right? Um, and in that moment, my desire to be the light was revealed. If I listed the 20 biggest mistakes I've made in ministry, I would guess that at least 15 of them flowed uh, somehow out of me forgetting that I am not the light. And one of my regular prayers uh, is therefore that Jesus would increase and that I would decrease. Right, but another way that we subtly seek to be the light sometimes, or at least we wind up drawing attention away from him as the light, is by only putting forth our strengths and our gifts and thinking that is the primary or the only way that we serve him. Now, please don't get me wrong. We should obviously employ those things to bear witness to Jesus, but the problem is when that is the only way we seek to bear witness to him. When we only show our gifts and our strengths, we distance ourselves from other people and take attention away from the light. If, if Jesus, the light, dwells within us by the Holy Spirit, how is it that people come to see him by our transparency? That they may see through us to him. Right, sometimes that transparency will result in people seeing the gifts and strength he's given us, but sometimes it will result in them seeing our weaknesses and our failures. Now, because of the depth of our sinfulness, we can sometimes show our weaknesses and failures in self-glorifying ways. Right? And we can sometimes hide our gifts, not out of humility, but out of cowardice. But with all of that said, because of the depth of God's grace, we can also learn to display our weaknesses and our failures in ways that point to Jesus' delight. He is often best seen. He is often best seen where we are cut and cracked. Right? We can bear witness to him, not just despite our weaknesses and failures, but oftentimes only because of them. And in all these things, in all these things, what we, the most fundamental issue is that we are seeking, many of us, to find our identity and our worth in being the light to people. Right? When we do that, one of two things will happen, and both of them are very deadly. The first is that you will blame yourselves for things that aren't your fault. And despite appearances, that can actually also be a pride issue 
But the second thing that can happen, and this can also be very deadly, maybe worse, is that you'll take credit for things you didn't do. And in the long run, in the long run, trying to find your identity and worth and being the light to people uh, is a no-win situation because eventually when you can't fix that person or when you don't have the answer or when you can't be available, that is the moment when your sense of identity and worth is going to come crashing down. And trust me, that will happen a lot. It's one of the first things, hardest things that every pastor has to learn. Rather than finding our worth in being the light, we must find it in being loved by the light and in him alone. But sometimes, but sometimes the problem comes from the other direction. People, including everyone in here, want other people to be the light for them. Right? Sometimes we want people to be able to fix us and we want other people to be able to fulfill us. And the real danger is when you get someone who's eager to be the light, interacting with someone who wants them to be the light. Um, Sometimes that happens in churches between pastors and congregations. It can be a very toxic combination. But God is loving, and he is so committed to our ultimate good. He is so committed to our ultimate good that he will not let that kind of situation last forever. Instead, he will give us the great gift of being disappointed by others. A gift which he intends to remind us that no one but Jesus is the light. And that disappointment, and that disappointment which is so important, is usually the result of discovering one or both things about someone. They're finite or they're fallen. And sometimes we become disappointed with other people when we discover that they are finite that they can't fix us or fulfill us. They can't always be available to fulfill us in our loneliness, and they don't always have the answers to help fix us in our brokenness. And when this is the source of our disappointment, the problem is with us. Right? Community is absolutely vital to God's purposes in our lives. Okay, no one, no one can rightly say that they are striving to know and to love and to follow Jesus if they are not a committed part of a local church. But like any good gift, like any good gift, we can pervert community into an idol that we confuse with Jesus. Community is necessary to knowing God, but we sometimes can turn it into a way of avoiding God. A man once described uh, his ministry Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, is that of cutting off every door and every window, blocking every street and every alley by which someone might seek to run from God and then to leave them stranded in his presence. An important part of our calling, an important part of our calling in one another's lives is to sometimes lovingly, wisely, courageously risk disappointing each other by saying no and by saying I don't know. And to say those things not because we don't want to be bothered or because we don't want to put in the work to become wise, but because we want to point each other to the real light. 
to leave each other stranded in God's presence. But sometimes we become disappointed with others as we discover that they are fallen. They sin against us, sometimes in minor ways, sometimes in major ways. And the sin itself is not good, and being sinned against is not good, but God will use it for good, including to remind us that no one but Jesus is the light. Everyone, Everyone in this room is going to disappoint you in some way because they are both finite and fallen. The only people in this room who will not disappoint you are the ones you don't know very well. So the measure of a church, the measure of a church is not whether you experience any disappointments or not. That's unavoidable because we are all works in progress. Rather, the measure of a church is how people respond when they've sinned and when they've been sinned against. From those who've sinned, is there genuine repentance and accountability? Is there a desire to give restitution when possible? Is there real effort, real grace-driven, Holy Spirit-empowered effort to change? And from those who've been sinned against, is there forgiveness and restoration when those things are present? We need, every church needs to become a community that says, I'm sorry, please forgive me, how can I do better? A whole lot. And every church needs to become a place that says, I love you, I forgive you. My arms are wide open again, a lot. Working out the details of what all of that should look like can sometimes be very complex and messy and is beyond the scope of this message. And there are, and there are sometimes in rare situations, situations so toxic, um, especially when leadership is toxic, that the wisest and most loving thing to do is to leave. But the point for today is that no one in this room, no one in this room is the light. Right? Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. His purpose, John the Baptist's purpose was that people might believe through him, not in him. And here I want to speak directly. If any of you are in this room, feel like you may have lost your faith or a significant portion of your faith because of bad experiences you've had with the church or with Christians. First, let me say how sorry I am about those I know that those experiences can be very painful. But I also want to say this. Those people were not the light. And your faith was never meant to be in them. I had a professor in seminary who told us about how the person who first brought him to faith and mentored him actually since then has left the faith and is now actively speaking against it. Um, And our professor said, but ultimately, that doesn't matter because Jesus is still true. If you find out tomorrow 
that your pastor or anyone else in this room or everyone else in this room is the worst of hypocrites, please know this, Jesus is still true. He still came to the earth in the flesh for you. And he still lived this life and faced every trial and temptation for you. And he still went to the cross and gave his life for you. And he was still raised from the dead that you might have enduring and unshakable hope. And he is still now in heaven praying for you. And he still reigns over history in your life. And he is still coming back to claim you. This and so much more is still true. And that is regardless of what anyone or what everyone in this room does or says. He is still true. Don't let anyone else in this room or anywhere else their poor witness to him, keep you from him. And because he's true, because he's true, let us who do believe in him strive to be great witnesses in ways that make it clear that he is the light and not us. Let us bear witness to him through our strengths and our weaknesses, through our successes and our failures, through our joys and our sorrows, in all the places where we are whole and in all the places where we're cracked, let us bear witness because he is true. But when we seek to be such witnesses, one of the things we'll quickly realize is this. In verses 9 through 11, it says, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. When verse 9 here speaks of Jesus as the true light, it means in contrast to all the false alternatives, other things, other people, other philosophies, they claim to be the light, but Jesus alone is the true light. It can also mean something like the ultimate light, right? that there were things in the Old Testament that were real light, but they were all preparing the way for him, the ultimate light. But accor- and according to verse 9, this light gives light to everyone. No one is excluded. It's available to everyone. And this light, according to verses 10 and 11, has drawn near to us. He literally came to the world and was in the world The creator of the universe was walking and talking and eating and sleeping right in the midst of his creation. Now we should pause here for a second and we should acknowledge what an incredible thing that is. We as um, those of us who have been Christian for a while may forget how astounding or how weird, depending on your perspective, some of what we believe may be or what it sounds like to others. We need to have a certain humility and winsomeness but when we speak about our faith, that it sounds weird. And if you're here today and you're not yet sure what you think about Christianity, please, we get it. That sounds weird that God came in the flesh. And I trust that this is a community where you can say that sounds weird and have the space to work it out. 
Right, but getting to the main line, back to the main line of thought, these verses are filled with this amazing news. There is a true light, and that light is available to everyone, and his grace is drawn near to us, and this is all great news, but, but, unfortunately, that's not all these verses say. They say that the world did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. Right, whereas verses 6 to 8 speak about the witness to the light, these verses speak about the rejection of the light. And this is the issue uh, that I want to turn to. In a wonderful book called Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale, a writer named Frederick Beatner writes this. So what if even in his sin the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and of his slobbery is that he keeps on turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or he doesn't want them or he just doesn't give a damn. So what if Jesus is the true light? So what if he's available to every one of us? So what if he's drawn near to us? When, what does any of that matter when the very essence of our condition is that we keep turning him down? Why or how would we turn him down? Well, verse 5 gives us a clue. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the original uh, Greek in which the New Testament was written, that the word translated has not overcome can also mean has not comprehended. Right? And scholars have debated which of the two meanings better fits the context here. But I agree with those scholars who actually think that uh, the Gospel of John, the author of John, is being intentionally ambiguous here. Um, he wants both meanings to be understood because as we said earlier, light can both illuminate and it can expose. And if that's the case, then darkness can reject him by either failing to understand or by outright resisting. At first, we can fail to respond to Jesus because we misunderstand him. Right? None of us comes to the claims of Jesus as a blank slate. Uh, we bring certain lenses through which we read scripture and through which we understand him and hear the message. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that uh, we don't see him correctly at all. It just means that all of us have certain distortions uh, that when we come to Jesus. Right? Certain parts of him, these lenses that we bring, make certain parts of Jesus jump out at us and really resonate with us right away. And those same lenses can blind us to other parts of him or make other parts of him hard to accept uh, immediately. And so for those of us who do believe, right, one of the things we need to ask ourselves is which parts of Jesus are we not seeing or embracing as we should? Maybe our Jesus is all kindness and gentleness and forgiveness and love as we usually define it and comfort. But he doesn't really demand anything of us. He requires no repentance or sacrifice. His commandments are more like suggestions. If you could get around to it, I'd be really grateful there's little to no difference between us and those around us. Our relationship to the world is all capitulation and never confrontation. 
no matter how loving and gentle. And maybe for some of us, our Jesus is all rules and all commandments and all just authority and holiness. But there's little to no joy and grace and humility born from the amazing truth that we are sinners who have been bled for. And so there's little love for those who are broken or who disagree with us. And our relationship to the world is all about difference. It's all about confrontation. And there's little to no relationship or embrace. And sometimes our distortions of Jesus come from a history that we bring with us that we've never really examined. Sometimes our distortions come from a history that we are now actively running from and have run all the way to the other side. The great reformer Martin Luther once described our tendency to go from one error to the other like a drunken man trying to ride a horse. We fall off on one side and then get back on just to fall off the other side. Right? We swing from error to error. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what part of him might we need to see and embrace better? And for those of you who are still wrestling with the claims of Jesus, my plea is that you would make your decision decision based upon the real Jesus. Jesus as he has really revealed himself to be and not based on whatever ideas you're bringing that you may have gotten from the media or from you know, somewhere else. I just finished a little book a couple months ago entitled The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. So if you're unfamiliar with Christopher Hitchens, he, is, uh, what, he was what you might call a public intellectual. Uh, he wrote, um, in 2007, he wrote a book entitled God is Not Great. Uh, He was a very outspoken atheist. And in that book, he argued that religious belief is not only wrong, but that it is dangerous. Uh, He had been um, very shaken by 9-11. But if you are well-versed in Christianity and you read the book, uh, which I did read, uh, you'll, you'll see that his understanding of Christianity is actually very thin and very selective. But here's the great irony that the publication of that book became the occasion for Hitchens to gain a much better portrait of Jesus. Uh, Because as part of like sort of the publicity tour for the book, he issued a challenge for religious people of any stripe to debate him. And the people who most often came forward were evangelical Christians. And this allowed him to come into contact with uh, thoughtful, in both senses of the word, uh, Christians, uh, maybe for the first time in his life, And he wound up becoming friends with some of them, including the author of the book. Uh, Hitchens was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, uh, to which he eventually lost his life in 2011. But before he did so, he took two long road trips with the author of this book. And during these road trips, they decided to study the Gospel of John together. And uh, through this and many other channels, uh, the author reports that there was a great softening, even an openness to the Gospel There was no conversion to report, uh, though we hold out hope that the God who reaches thieves on the cross can reach people on their deathbeds. But my point in all of this is that Hitchens initially rejected and railed against the Jesus he hardly understood. But once he began to understand him rightly, he was at least intrigued. If you're here today still trying to figure this thing out, please do not reject a Jesus that you don't even yet know.
right? The, no matter where you are in your journey, the only real way to correct our distorted understandings is to read the scriptures again and again and again, to read them for ourselves, but not by ourselves, uh, because we need other people and their lenses to correct uh, us and to give us a fuller understanding. And that's what I implore all of you. But the other way that we can reject Jesus is by actively resisting him. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, and especially if you're still trying to figure uh, what you think of Jesus out, we really respect uh, that you have intellectual doubts. And I trust that this is a place, as I said, that's committed to addressing intellectual doubts with real honesty and seriousness. But let me ask you this. Would you want Christianity to be true? To be clear, not some of it, but all of it. And again, not the distortions of it, uh, like, like it, you know, it involves belonging to a specific political party or something, but all of it as it is presented in Scripture. Right? A lot of people like to present their doubts and unbelief, whether you are a believer or not, a lot of people like to present their doubts or unbelief as purely intellectual matters while presenting faith as the result of some immature Freudian you know, need for meaning or comfort or a daddy figure. Right? But we are not brains on a stick, none of us. We are a complex mixture of intellect and emotions and will and beneath all of that is what the Bible calls the heart. Which, by which it means the place of our deepest loyalties and our deepest commitments. And that means that no one's doubt is purely intellectual. Uh, Thomas Nagel, who is one of the most thoughtful contemporary atheist philosophers I've come across, he writes this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in that belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem, what a great phrase. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism in our time. At the beginning part of the 20th century, Aldous Huxley, the author of A Brave New World, who was also an atheist, wrote, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics Metaphysics is like the study of the nature of reality. Rather, he is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. All of us have our reasons for not wanting it to be true. And to be clear, it's not just that we don't want there to be an authority over us, we actually don't want grace to be true either. Because to say that our salvation is by grace alone means that we are helpless to save ourselves. It means that we're not as good as we like to think we are, 
that God should get all the credit for our salvation. A pastor named Tim Keller recounts a conversation he had with a woman where she said that she didn't want salvation to be by grace because then it would mean that there wasn't anything that God couldn't ask of her. Christian or not, we sometimes don't even want his love and grace and promises to be true because those are the things that would make our self-centeredness and our apathy and our grief and our complacency all the more inexplicable and inexcusable. One result of all of this is that coming to faith or growing in faith can be a very jarring experience. It's important that we acknowledge that. It's jarring because it means admitting we've been wrong. It doesn't just involve dealing with a behavior over here or over there. It involves the very recentering of our lives in Christ. And because it can be jarring, because it often means coming out of hiding, since light exposes hidden things, and that can be a very, very scary thing. Especially, especially for those of us who, who can be overwhelmed by shame. And to those of you for whom the thought of stepping into light, letting him be light, and you've been resisting him as light, I want to say this to you. The Bible presents God's complete knowledge of us from two different perspectives. To those who are proud, manipulative, just, you know, that kind of thing, it presents his absolute knowledge of us as a warning. Please don't think he's fooled. Even if everyone else is fooled, he's not fooled. But to those who are wrestling with shame, who are contrite, it presents his complete knowledge of us as a promise. He already knows. And he's come for you. And so there's no reason any longer to hide. You are not going to surprise him with your sin, with the skeletons in the closet. He already knows. He's known since the beginning of the world. And he sent his son for you. Please come in to light. This is a jarring thing. One author described her conversion as a train wreck because it so upended her life. It is jarring and scary. And this is why we must ultimately, it's, this is why ultimately he must come get us. Verse 13 says that the children of God are, not, are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God must birth us. He must sustain us. He must nourish us. He must grow us in the faith, which is why no one gets to brag about believing. I want to conclude with this parable, if you will. Imagine that you were born in a cave. It's quite dark in the cave. Though there's just enough light to live and to see many, some parts of the cave, the exact source of this light is not very clear. It just sort of permeates the cave. 
You've occasionally wondered about that light, but, you know, not too much. I mean, ultimately, who cares as long as there's enough light to live? But as you grow up and you live in this cave, you occasionally encounter beams of light uh, that illuminate parts of the cave in a way that make that cave seem more beautiful. But even more beautiful is the light itself because you generally do not see light that bright. But again, you cannot figure out where this light is coming from. You might guess that it's coming from outside the cave, but because you were born and have lived inside the cave your whole life, you don't even know that there is such a thing as outside the cave. You occasionally hear sounds like a voice, sometimes very faint, sometimes a little louder. You can barely make out what it's saying, but again, you can't figure out where it's coming from and you usually just dismiss it as your imagination. Then one day, you come across an old book and it's filled with these fantastical stories, stories of a place beyond the cave. But again, you can't even imagine what that means, but the stories intrigue you and especially the hero that's described in these stories and so you keep reading. And as you keep reading, something strange happens. You begin to notice those brighter beams of light more often and the voice becomes louder and more frequent. You even begin to recognize and make out what that voice is saying and amazingly, that voice is calling your name. You're not sure what to make of all of this. You've heard rumors of other people who've experienced similar things, but until now, you've just dismissed them as lunatics. But you keep reading and the voice becomes louder and begins to direct you toward a wall in the cave. And while you're standing near the wall, one day, boom, there's an explosion. And an enormous hole opens in the cave. And for a split second, you catch a glimpse of what lies outside the cave. And it's incredible colors and beauty and brightness that you've never imagined. But before you can really take it in, the brightness of the light hits your eye and it hurts so much. You just close your eyes. It really hurts because you've spent your whole life in that cave. But now the voice is crystal clear and it's calling your name. It's saying, he's come to rescue you from this cave. And he's inviting you out. But all you know is that the light is blinding and it hurts. And not only that, but in its brightness, in that glimpse of brightness, you are able to see for the first time how dusty you've become from living in that cave your whole life. And you feel a twang of shame at the thought of going out to meet someone looking like that. And in that moment, you're faced with a decision. Do you run back into the cave because the light hurts too much and because you're ashamed? Or do you trust the voice of the one who's come to rescue you and step out? Stepping into the light for the first time or for the first time in a long time can be a jarring and painful experience. But please do not let that keep you inside the cave. There is no life in that cave. And there's more beauty and more life and more light than you could have imagined on the outside. He's come for you. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you and not we are the light. Lord, I pray that you would humble all of us who did 
who live too much of our lives trying to be the light and that you would save us from the false uh, idolatry of hoping others will be the light. Lord, I pray that you would give us a clear, ever clearer understanding of who you are. And as we come to know who you are, would you grant us the courage to live in your light? Pray especially for all those who are fearful of stepping in the light. Lord, would you, by your grace, assure them that you already know and that you've come for them. Lord, we pray these things for your glory and for our freedom and joy. Amen.